0: welcome to an extra special episode of married to the movies i'm sarah watt
1: and i'm doug Dilliman.
0: so we're in tuscany for a month as as uh, the observant listeners to our last podcast will know and this is the midpoint for us of a five-month excursion around europe this excursion came from a dream that we had to uh, not a literal dream, I should say, but more of a uh, figurative dream, a figurative dream to be able to spend a significant period of time in um, a variety of places in order to soak up that place, uh, live local to some degree, uh, and and really, really get, I suppose, underneath the skin of what a lot of places might otherwise feel like when they're just tourist
1: Yeah, I think a lot of us, um, especially um, in the reason we're shoehorning this into the married to the movies uh, apparatus is so many of us live with dreams of what a place might be like from the movies. And so we want to see what happens when you take these places and actually um, spend real time on the ground, not, you know, a a iconic two hours before sunset or um, a little moment under the Tuscan sun or what have you, not that I think I've ever seen on the, under the
0: Tuscan sun. But you sun. see, even but... Before Sunset, you make a really valid point. Most of the young people, if we can consider ourselves still young, most of the young people of our generation watched the Before Sunrise, Sunset, um, what was the last one, Midnight yes. um, films. And we'll have conjured up this idea of what it would be like to live in Paris. And certainly, it's good that you mentioned that, Doug, because certainly the whole living in Paris thing is something that's lived within me since my teenage years. And I know that I'm not alone in this. So for us to be able to spend a whole month living in Paris, um, Doug and I have certainly found that it was really instructional in terms of uh, disavowing us of this idea that, that Paris can be this fantastical world that we see in the movies.
1: And it's a funny thing because, I mean, we've seen no shortage of dystopian or uh, cynical takes of Paris on screen from uh, La Haine to Deepin to Nocturama for a more upper-class version of that, Mm. um, to any number of terrible or not-so-terrible French sex comedies where it's just the bourgeoisie being awful to each other. Mm. But... um, as often happens, the cream rises to the top and the dream rises to the top and and sticks with you. And you do have these sun-dappled moments of, you know, floating around the uh, Seine and looking at Notre Dame in the uh, out of the corner of your eye and imagining doing that someday.
0: Absolutely. Look, Amélie is a case in point. There can't be anybody who watched Amélie without feeling both this sort of, Uh, a nostalgia for something that hadn't yet happened to them. This idea that wouldn't it be amazing to go to Montmartre and uh, experience the life that Amelie leads and to look like Audrey Tautou and to be as suave as Matthew Kasovitz.
1: I had no desire to look like Audrey Tautou. (laughs) I had a very strong
0: desire to. (laughs) But at the same time, I was under no illusion because the primary colored film that it was, you know, it was like the French Mm. Dick Tracy in terms of coloring. You knew that it was fantastical and amazing. And yet still, I was drawn there I think first to Montmartre in 2008 Mm. um, wanting to uh, catch some idea of the Amélie dream and yet I also was smart enough to know there is no way I will ever live in a little apartment and have her cute little black bobbed hair and this this cute little life with the black uh, lace-up shoes and Mm the scooter-riding boyfriend and all that sort of thing. And yet Paris still held this magical, fantastical ideal to me.
1: And I've had moments of that in other cities. I remember um, one time visiting New York and just wandering around and being like, oh, this is the bit in Central Park from um, birth where there's the big overhead track and, oh, there's the library from Ghostbusters. Mm. And you just feel like you're in the movie of it. And... And crucially, I was in New York for like three or four days. Um, And every time I've been to New York, I felt like I've been hit by a fire hose of great stuff and amazing things. But also I leave feeling like I've been hit by a fire hose for three or four days. And
0: drained and probably ready for the peace and Hmm. quiet. It's interesting that you mentioned New York, Doug, because years before you came into my world, I went to New York for one of the most amazing weeks ever. And I remember specifically, as we got out of the taxi or the cab, the yellow cab at our hotel, um, it was November, and there was steam coming out of the um, the, the vents in yep. the road. And I thought, oh my gosh, New York looks exactly like it does in the movies.
1: So you're saying one of the most amazing times ever was before you met me.
0: That's right. <laughs> But accidentally, that is indeed what I, what I have said.
1: Please tune into our next instalment. No
0: longer married to the movies, <laughs> uh, but just say so we make it through this instalment and the rest of this holiday. Then, you're, but you're absolutely right. My first thought was New York looks exactly like it does in the movies, and the only other place I felt like that is Venice coming out of Santa Lucia train station, out into the main sort of concourse of, of Venice, and you've got the Grand Canal in uh, in front of you, and oh my gosh, it looks exactly like it's supposed to.
1: And it sings to your heart. It's, it's, it's just going to be like, Do, don't look
0: now, you know? Oh, if only not. <laughs> so but it's the-
1: summertime, actually. The um, is such an amazing film set in Venice, and does, did have those echoes of that. And on this trip, um, you know, there's certainly other films that are set both in Italy and Paris that have been running through your mind?
0: Absolutely. So here's the thing. We all know, and any one of us who's ever traveled anywhere outside of our home country, we travel with an ideal of what the destination is going to be like. And we all know that once we get there, the reality is we are a tourist more often than not. Um, I think there's a terrible irony in the fact that the simple truth is that every other tourist wishes that all the other mm. tourists would bugger off, get out of their face, get out of my photo uh, shot, you know, we were in Piazza, uh, Piazza della Signoria in Florence just yes. yesterday, and that's, it, it isn't what's triggered this this thought or this podcast, because I've been ruminating on this for the last, I guess, two and a half months, but... Mm. Piazza della Signoria is one of the most important, most significant uh, locations in A Room with a View, which most of us, not Doug, I should say, but most of us grew up with. Doug has subsequently watched A Room with a View. Um, but there's a whole other podcast in I that. I think you're being
1: very presumptive in that our entire audience grew up at nine years old saying, I won't have Ghostbusters, I'll have Room with a View instead.
0: Well, maybe they had both, Doug, and quite rightly theory. so. So this wonderful Merchant Ivory movie that if you know anything about film, you've seen several times. There's a formative scene in Piazza della Signoria. And when somebody like me and most lovers of the film go to Florence, There is something about it that they want to capture. And I have to leap in again on myself straight away and say, look, I'm not expecting everybody to be walking around in Victorian dress and behaving in that way. And I'm not expecting it to look exactly like it did in the movie. But when I get to that piazza and it is completely clogged with tourists, even in the first Mm. week of May, and there are souvenir stands everywhere and everybody is trying to take photographs with um, sometimes phones, sometimes iPads,
1: Ah! Um, (laughs) sometimes selfie sticks,
0: exactly, then there is literally no way of being able to sort of reach through and touch what it is that one has gone there for. And I I think there's, I mean,
1: I'm not a a real person about film, obviously, because I've only seen A Room with a View once, but I have (laughs) seen La Dolce Vita a couple times. And, uh, you know, there's a moment in La Dolce Vita when they arrive at the Trevi Fountain and are alone. Mm. And um, that actually is science fiction in 2019. It is impossible to arrive at the Trevi Fountain alone. It is impossible to arrive there with less than 150 people, I'd say, possibly at 3 a.m. I haven't been, mm. but even then it's probably a push. Mm. Um, it's uh, And so it begs the question, what is it that we want from the you know putting our physical self in these places mm. that we think we aren't getting from the image and what, what
0: the, the image that we've seen in the film yeah
1: <laughs> what what do we think we're going to get from seeing the Trevi Fountain in person that we aren't going to get from a crew spending hours lighting it into an inch of its. Life and framing it, you know, and with they the shot perfect it overnight. As we know yes.
0: from going to Chinatown, they actually sure. shot it overnight, and they had to keep. Uh, still, they had to keep paparazzi and tourists at bay. Um, yes,
1: and um, and Roman Holiday as well features <clears throat> that, as well as many other landmarks. Once again, um, remarkably underpopulated <laughs> relative yeah. to actual life. Um, and obviously, that's part of the illusion of film. There's a great uh, story about Scorsese asking Kurosawa about how why he framed a shot in *Ron*, his medieval um, Jap- medieval Japanese remake of *King Lear*, a certain way. And he said, "Well, if I pan to the right, you'd have the sign over the Sony Tower." And, um, right. Exactly. And so there is that creation of the magic. But then, why do we expect that we can rock up in 2019? when Florence isn't really news to anybody.
0: No, exactly. (laughs) And look, I don't want the listeners to think that I'm stupid and that I had an expectation that we could rock up in 2019 Mm -hmm. and get that. But I suppose I've had more time on this trip to actually think about what is it that I want and what am I not able to get here? Now, one thing that each of us mentioned in our written blogs is that when we were in Rome... In fact, the the way I would preface this is that pretty much on our first or second day in Rome, we were still in in those days able to be wowed by what we were seeing. And of course, in Rome, you are wowed by architecture that Mm. is two millennia old. Mm. Um, And I remember saying aloud, this building has been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and used to be purposed for something else. And I wish that there was a way that I could touch it and immediately have a vision of what was going on in that building back in that time, what I was really hankering for was um, a, a genuine taste of how things used to be, so that I could feel I'm standing in a place that's been around since Roman times, right? Mm-hmm. And then on our last day in Rome, or nearest as our last day, we went on the most amazing underground tour that's only been open for the last several years at the Palazzo Valentini, where they had recently um, sort of uh, excavated, I guess, unearthed. The remains of a, a Domus romane, a, a, a,
1: a Roman home. A from,
0: Roman home from the sort of the aristocracy, I think, wasn't yeah, it?
1: Yeah, but more significantly from the pre-Christian era.
0: Right. But, and so the amazing thing that they've done in the uh, Domus Romani is, hmm. and you'll have to explain this better than uh, I, but they've constructed sort of a...
1: Uh, there's a few things. So for the most part, you're walking over the Domus Romani and the floor is um, plexiglass or something, some kind of plastic that's Strong enough to support you, but also clear so that you can see in fact two layers of structure underneath because there's uh I forget exactly, but there's a structure from one era and then there's a structure from a couple centuries later That's and they right. kind of interact with each other a, a, a little bit or, um but also then use video projections to try to create a sense of what the space would have uh actually looked like at, at that time, time, not just this slab of. Tan, unrecognizable rock, but this actually beautifully painted space with people drinking wine and kids running and playing, and
0: tiled walls and fountains yeah. and all of the things. And and the the amazing thing about the, as you say, the structural environment is they're able to to tell you on this tour. Mm-hmm. If you look down here, that is the Roman bath as was, and this is what it would have looked like and how people would have used it. And so, yes, because you're actually immersed in the environment, I suppose it's about as close as one can get, isn't it, to experiencing how things would have been.
1: Absolutely, but it also begs the question that at that point, um, you're not that far off from experiencing the whole thing in virtual reality, and admittedly in 2019, you know, we still have limitations as far as, Um, the resolution of what we're seeing and the physicality and these sorts of things. But um, as a side note, I'm reading a book about China that was written in 1997 about a guy, Simon Winchester, doing a trip down the Yangtze River. Mm -hmm. And at first I was like, should I bother? 20 years is actually a lot of time given recent Chinese history, but it's actually a journey through ancient Chinese history. So I thought, okay, maybe it won't be that dated. The first four paragraphs are dedicated to the miracle of Coming home and turning on your computer and getting messages from across the globe. Right. Electronic mail missives coming in, and you know, and right. and, and it's so <laughs> amazingly dated of this whole idea that you might actually just have somebody electronically contact you that you don't know, mm. and um, and so talking about you know, these sorts of things in big picture in terms of what virtual reality is like now. It's Mm. like, I feel like five years from now, we'll all have devices at home that will give near as damn it photorealistic um, abilities to tour all the great locations
0: of the world.
1: Without actually going. You'll put your goggles on and you'll be in the Duomo and you'll be in Notre Dame even, even though it doesn't exist anymore because it's already been 3D mapped. Sure, it will be. I mean, it kind of exists, um, but and you'll be able to not just walk around, but you'll be able to walk around without tourists, and you'll be able to ascend, which obviously you can't do in real life.
0: Yeah, like go up and touch the Sistine Chapel ceiling, or actually, sure, go or, up or and just
1: float and stand
0: th- and be three inches
1: from those frescoes sure. where, where the drone that f- that filmed it was, yeah. and get an experience. And then the question is, well. If you can do that, why would you go to Rome?
0: Well, so here's the thing. So, to come back to Room with a View, not at all facetiously. So, I'm reading the book of Room with a View for the first mm. time ever. Um, I've seen the film many times, but I'm now reading. Some the people book.
1: grew up with that book, you know.
0: <laughs> I know. So, I'm now reading that book. And it's beautifully, um, obviously it's beautifully evocative of a Florence, um, from, and I should really know my dates a whole lot better, mm. but I don't know, 150 years ago. Sure. And um, and interestingly, as a side note, even the people in Florence at the time wished that there were fewer tourists and are sneery about right, the yes. tourists and wish that they could capture the sort of the the really local, um feel in the local situation so i th- I mean you know this whole tourist issue has is, is has been around forever hasn't it but my point is this I watch room with a view and I think I would love to go back to Florence and I want to go to those places so I turn up in Piazza della Signoria and it's in 2019. In 29, well, in, you know, in I, I was there as a child uh, and there as a young adult in 96 and then 2000 and whenever and mm. so on. So every time I go there, it's worse and worse yeah. and less and less like what I'm looking for. So I'm standing there and I'm thinking, well, this isn't at all what I like.
1: So it's like heroin, basically. Oh, please.
0: <laughs> um, and then the so the next step, what we're saying is that presumably then I go home and I get my VR goggles out and I go to mm. uh, um, Piazza della Signoria and it's free of tourists, and it is in some way like I want it to be, and yet there is still a human part of me that wants to be there. And when I go back there, it's not what I want, and I wind up watching Room with a View, which I'm desperate to get home and re-watch because I want to <laughs> see it the way that I wanted it to be.
1: And, yeah, and we have this hunger as human. I mean, there's a, a book by um, David Shields, and I think it's called Reality Hunger, um, but it is this desire that we have for the genuine or something that's real which is increasingly difficult to ascertain in this world of deep fakes but yet in our heart we feel like we know when something's real and we know that when we put our goggles on no matter how great the simulation Mm. is no matter if you have your partner like cooking a plate of pasta or um whatever in the next room Mm. And you know, turning up the humidity in the house so it feels like Mm. it's thirty-six degrees and bumping into you randomly—it's still not
0: going to feel this. You
1: still know you're not in Florence. That's right. No matter how good that video gets, no matter how much the bodysuit is able to get there and like you know trigger the feeling of a certain breeze or the the water flicking off a fountain, Mm. you'll still know you weren't there. Yes, and. It's the horrible or beautiful thing about being human is that we want that. Yes. We want something that's genuine and we keep reaching for it. And that's why Florence is sclerotic with these tour group. I mean, I use the word advisedly, you know. It's, what does it mean?
0: It, it it's the
1: hardening of bones, the calcification. Oh, right. And so it's like there's passages you literally can't get through because you'll there and suddenly like there'll be a 50 person tour group yeah and you'll wait for them to get by and, and then, then all of the a sudden tour, yeah tour, and then yeah. and then you're like okay well i guess we'll just go turn around and go back around the corner mm-hmm. nope oh, there's another one right there yeah. and you're just like you just have to fight your way through the massive humanity and i mean i've been on this trip two and a half months now and i got body checked twice in florence mm. and i haven't been body checked this whole time mm. both by women incidentally for whatever reason mm. but well, um, Doug,
0: you're looking pretty fresh. um mm. i i uh, You know, I'm almost embarrassed to say, but i started so I'll finish. We went to the Coliseum. And, I mean, look, everybody knows you don't get anything from going to the Coliseum. There is absolutely i mean there was a lot of interesting history to read about there's a really good museum there too it's a great that's what i mean the good museum part but when you're in the actual Colosseum, hoping for goodness knows what you can't get it there's no Mm. sense whatsoever that gladiators actually did their stuff down there in front of you or that lions ran around eating christians or whatever it might have been um and you're standing in this rock that has been around for two millennia and it's you can't get a sense of that at all and it's Mostly, I would say, because of the swords of um, other people. And it wasn't trying to do the same thing.
1: And it wasn't instantaneous, but pretty much within a couple of weeks, you went home and watched Gladiator. Exactly. If if, if that. And that's
0: what I'm slightly embarrassed about, because I thought, well, I didn't really get a sense of the Colosseum, so I'm actually going to go watch Gladiator, because the Colosseum was in that, albeit computer generated. And maybe it'll give me more of a sense of what it was like. And spoiler alert, it didn't. Um, and then I watched a whole lot of special features about how they created, like constructed the sets for gladiators. So you didn't you didn't get any kind of
1: buzz out of like, oh, that's that's the thing that I saw in real life. That's what it was like. It or, no, because no. it didn't
0: feel like it at all. So oh, there was okay. no connect in my brain whatsoever okay. with, oh, look, that's the same street that I walked down to go in there. There was there was none of that. And that's probably just the way that gladiators. Created as yeah. much as the fact that Rome wasn't as developed then as it is now.
1: So conversely, we're watching uh, another thing that's set in Rome, but it, in the present day, which is Sabura Blood in Rome*, which is a series on Netflix. We're into series two, and so
0: and it's an Italian, it's an Italian sort of gangster yeah.
1: series, and it's, yeah, it's Italian language,
0: yep, um, with subtitles. You'll be pleased to know, listeners, um, highly recommended but probably mainly recommended for us because Doug and I are getting an enormous amount of pleasure out of recognizing um piazzas and um roads and places in Rome that are used almost incidentally as locations right
1: yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that pleasure, which is why I was wondering that, Um, I, especially from season one, for some reason, season two felt like diminishing returns. But that also might be the nature of long form narrative where you start investing more in the characters. As yeah, But you it's go also on. the
0: nature of the fact that we're, we've become inured to it. Whereas when we were mm. first watching Sabura, we were like, ha ha, there's the road towards the Vatican. And yeah. ha ha, there's the, there's the road outside the government offices. Um, we've been there.
1: And having spent 18 days in Rome, which is not really that much given how much Rome there is, um, we've probably run out of the Locations that we know that of course. they can use that are relevant to the show, because um, they're not going to go shoot at Jerry Thomas or whatever, you know.
0: And yet, that's really interesting to me. Why? Why do human beings? And I'm assuming it's not just you and mm. me, Doug. But why? And then when we rewatched uh, Roman Holiday just recently, post Rome, there was a little bit of a thrill for mm. going. Oh, you know they've gone past the Spanish steps or oh look that street looks different now not like to enormous detail I can't pretend to know for a second where um, Gregory Peck's apartment is or anything like that Mm -hmm. but why do we get those sorts of thrills of recognition do you think?
1: Well there's this kind of idea of pattern recognition right that we we thrive as humans as a species because we're able to recognize patterns and appreciate them and that can be taken to weird extremes with some of the you know, conspiracy theory type stuff. But just at basic levels, like visually, if you look at a visual field and you notice a change in that visual field like a big object coming towards you, you need to process that. And if you don't process that, you get eaten by the lion and die. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've evolved to reward pattern recognition to some degree. And and by pattern
0: recognition, you mean like familiarity with something?
1: Yeah. So when we recognize something, there'll be some... Mm -hmm element of a neurotransmitter that's given off maybe a small amount of dopamine or whatever it says, I know that place, mm. you know, that's familiar to me. Um, and also we're, we're wired to enjoy novelty as well. So the ideal neurological cocktail mm. combines familiarity and novelty, which is why you have this huge run now of TV shows that use really familiar narrative tropes in slightly different settings and slightly different arrangements Uh so if you look at you know them it's like you can say oh game of thrones is just x other soap opera and drag or whatever but it's like oh but it's slightly different but also like if you look back you're like oh well those are all kind of the things we expect to happen and it's a very managed set of expectations it's not like a david lynch is going to show up in an episode and it's suddenly we're going to travel back it's familiar
0: things yeah as you say, cast or set in a, a novel environment.
1: Yeah, and 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 is a very circumscribed set of novelty that's permitted mm. and, and how much that is will vary from person to person's. Mm. But um but yeah, I was thinking about Babylon Berlin, which is a show that I have not seen. Um a show that has been recommended to me by lots of people, a show that I'm not very interested in. I've never been to Berlin. Mm. People rave about Berlin, and I, yeah, I have. Ironically, I had the same chip on my shoulder about Berlin that I had about Florence in two thousand and seven before I went there, and everybody was raving about Florence. And finally, I went to Florence because only because it worked for the routing of my trip. I basically needed to go through Florence. Mm. I'm like, fine, I'll spend a night in your, you know classic home of you know western (laughs) culture and it's like oh yeah that that's pretty amazing um but i i mean even just in the 12 years from first visiting there to now um because i i would have gone in sometime in june and it feels just much more intense and part of that's just the um algorithmic structure of tourism where mm. it's like you now have the number one thing and that's at the top of your trip advisors and your Yelp mm. and everybody does that mm. and we saw that um we tried to go to the duomo um which is the big big
0: it's cathedral. Most yeah, it,
1: it's cathedral. the it's the vi- most visually enticing from the outside cathedral mm. in florence um and it would have been i don't know at least an hour to get inside and so instead we went to Santa Croce and maybe waited three minutes to get inside. And it's gorgeous and mm. it's amazing, but it's and not Santa number And Santa Croce one.
0: is a key location from a room with a view. So that was another oh, reason. Is it? Yeah.
1: Did you oh. not realize that's why I
0: always <laughs> love going to Santa oh. Croce? There are very significant scenes there. There are no significant scenes in the Duomo. Mm. But anyway, getting back what to your What about
1: Dan Brown's books, though?
0: Oh, yeah, so here's <laughs> the other embarrassment. We went to the Louvre, as you do, um, I mean, look, we were in Paris for a month, so you'd be r- ridiculous not to go. Um, and then I'm like, I really want to rewatch the Da Vinci Code. Well, I don't want to reread it, re- uh, listeners. Don't worry about that because ain't nobody got time for that. I can't
1: read anything, the Da Vinci Code, because I've kept it no. at arm's length. <laughs> oh,
0: but, the, but we'd been to Castel <laughs> Sant'Angelo in Rome as well. And all of a sudden, I want to rewatch the Da Vinci Code. And then I'm thinking, well, why? You've just been to the locations. You don't need to see them in a movie. But there's there's suddenly this sort of appetite within me to re-watch that film, of all films, just to feel that sense of exactly what you mentioned before, which is the familiarity. The That's familiar to me. That's where, where I went. I don't understand, on any deeper level, why that matters. It sounds really stupid. And I remember even walking through the... Um, the Louvre. That one evening when we mm. were down in the Egyptian exhibition, thinking, "Oh, I can't wait to see that film again," and then <laughs> feeling quite silly about it. Mm. But but you know, similarly, we arrived here in Tuscany, and um, wonderfully by by kismet, the apartment that we're staying in has a, a DVD copy of The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is yeah. one of my favourite films of all time. And we rewatched that. We had that flash of, oh, my goodness, there's Piazza Navona, which yeah. we hadn't recognized before because we didn't know Piazza Navona. But they also shoot in a, a whole area of, um, I think, Sicily, actually, that I've never been to, that is that whole, I would love to go to a place like that one day, even though I know it won't be anything like it was in the film The Talented Mr. Ripley. So on we go, you know, film... Uh, it evokes for me this ideal that I want to go and experience that I know I will go and I won't be able to capture and I'll be disappointed.
1: So what you're saying is we're never taking any more trips.
0: That's right. We're just going to stay at home (laughs) in New Zealand and never be disappointed again.
1: (laughs) So are there other places, though, that you feel like now that um, even though you've been through this cycle that you like oh actually i still do want to go to this place because of uh a film or because of um an experience with it are you like actually
0: my traveling days are over well no i mean Uh,
1: but it it does get it bring up the question like why why are we traveling and i think i i think about it in kind of quite an ethical level at this point which i didn't before this trip but right before i left a friend asked, so what are you doing for carbon offset? And I'd actually briefly looked into carbon offset, um, and it was going to cost more than the cost of our plane tickets. It turns out that there's a quite opportunistic market on the internet around carbon offset, mm. and, and there's something like a thousand times uh, variation in what you can pay. Mm. So at some point, I'll make some token or not so token contribution to it, but it is but um,
0: well, it's an increasingly important question.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's essential. And, you know, either air travel will modify itself to a way that is less carbon intensive and that it'll be a guilt-free experience, or it won't. And it will be the same as, you know, driving an eight-mile-a-gallon gas guzzler around and just burning fuel because you can... Kind of frowned upon experience, and I almost feel like it's starting to head that way right now. Mm. Um, that conspicuous travel is not, you know, so, so fr- it's so welcomed. Which for people who both have strong roots overseas is something mm. that's well, and difficult also to who, contend who with. Who have
0: grown up traveling, and mm. as young people and middle-aged people have been um, very wedded to traveling. Look, I think you make a really important point. I have no idea what my what my uh, future intention is around the environment. But the other aspect to it, which I suppose is also environmental, is the fact that we read an article just the other day about places like Venice Mm -hmm. being entirely overpopulated and over-touristic, and that it's actually jeopardizing the place. Now, we all know that um, environmentally Venice has been sinking for Ye- Ages, well, yeah. yeah, years, and um, but it's really, really, really under so much pressure in terms of, uh, trash and trash removal and tourists mm. and, and we're going there, yeah, and we're, and we're adding to that for seven or eight days and it's not
1: news i mean literally um i came to europe in 2007 uh to go to a music festival in barcelona and i only found out when i was booking the ticket that it was an open jaw and that i could return from a different city Mm -hmm. and they said and i had a month and i hadn't really worked out my plans they said where do you want to come back from and my first thought being somebody who was in new york just prior to september 11 and not going to world trade center was like what may not be around the next time I get to Europe. Mm. And I said Venice. Mm. Um and you know, there's a, every reason to think Venice will be there when we're there for the Biennale in a month's time. Yeah. But it still is under increasing pressure. And and you have people who live in these cities. And that's what the, at one point the heart of these cities was. Mm. And becoming this, you know, tourism checklist for a globe that's now coming online you know you have these cultures that didn't have people who were traveling in groups 15-20 years ago that are now um, joining the hordes of European tourists and American tourists that were already traveling and it's there's just not the infrastructure to sustain them so what happens is it unethical to go back to a place like Florence that we've been to and say you know actually you know we need to treat this kind of like a farmer would treat you know, the yeah. um, the different um, pads you know um, and let that rest for a while so other
0: people and can. go to some of the more off the beaten track places, <laughs> which of yeah. course comes down to or comes back around to what travelers usually want from places. So yes, okay. So there, on the one hand, people want to go to places. Um, of renown. They want to go to Venice. They want to go to Paris. They want to see the Eiffel Tower. They want to go to the Louvre. They want to see the Mona Lisa. And, you know, we were joking earlier. We were joking earlier about our being um, a bit snobby, really, and thinking we don't need to see the Mona Lisa. A, seen her before. B, she's really mm. tiny in a glass case, and all anybody does is go there. So we mock the people who go to look at the Mona Lisa, but we're still at the bloody Louvre. We're, still in, Paris, and you we're know. still in Paris. We're still in Paris. We're not is the biggest <laughs> cliche of international travel. Exactly. Yeah. So this whole notion, we talked a bit on this trip about um, ideas of sort of elitism or connoisseurship, mm-hmm. you know, if all anybody. Wants. And when I say anybody, I don't actually mean everybody. But all anybody wants is to be the the the, the only tourist in the village. You know, mm-hmm. they want to be the person who's living local and um, and they want a the genuine the, experience, they the want reality the genuine, hunger. Exactly. Yeah. They want the reality hunger that nobody can get anymore. Mm. And so we all want to be off in a tiny little village rather than a major town. Um, but increasingly that sort of thing. But
1: we also also want to see the landmarks of, you know, we we grow up, you know, knowing about the Mona Lisa, we grow up, you know, knowing what the Eiffel Tower looks like, you know, and, and that's why these things loom large in our programming from a really young age. Yes. And then you have, yes, the whole film culture that just adds to those. And part of it is like, you know, there's so many films, whether it's a Bourne film or a Bond film or a romance film that's mm. like, will have some globe trotting element to yeah. them, and you can have a character say, "We're going to Paris," or you can have a shot of the Eiffel Tower,
0: yeah, and, and the- that's the shorthand, you know, yeah,
1: and and cool. so and so that shorthand becomes part of it, and especially in those films, you know, there's this escapist element, you know, especially in romance and um, adventure, you know, um, I'm thinking of like charade and films like that. Um, those kind of 50s, 60s, um, traveling around Europe um, things. But there'll be plenty in the present day as well. Well,
0: James Bond, I mean, the James Bond films make a rightly a big deal Mm. about really traversing the globe. And if if he can get to all of the main continents, then uh, in some capacity, then he's done really well. And it certainly brings everything alive and it brings the world to everybody. Um, And yes, these are all the sorts of things that... um, 100 well 200 plus years ago were really only available to the wealthy merchants and people who could read I suppose and that's the beauty mm-hmm. of your Ian your e. Forsters and people spending a month living in Florence which I believe he did yeah. writing this novel um, and being able to capture a whole lot of stuff I mean most of it's set in England to be fair but the seminal parts are set in Italy um, so
1: this is interesting because what does that mean about like if art has historically been meant to distill the experience of a place that you can't travel to or get to or experience, Mm. what is the meaning of that when I can pick up my phone and let's say um, Dubrovnik, I've never been to Dubrovnik Mm. and I'm, I've been told it's great. I've been told it's amazing. I've also heard it's over-touristed. So, Mm. you know, it's like, do I even need a piece of art to summarize Dubrovnik for me? Or can I just go on Wikipedia and look at pictures and mm. kind of have a dubrovnik experience? Can I get... Some guy with a watch six hours of drone footage of Dubrovnik, sure. which I'm sure is floating around YouTube. Sure. There's probably six thousand hours of.
0: But you're right. Drone it comes footage. down to: are we wanting to see something, or are we wanting to experience it? Mm. And hopefully, our two listeners to this podcast <laughs> are, are shouting at the uh, at whatever device they're listening on and saying, "Because you want some sort of experience from being there." Mm. And you know, there is more of an experience of standing in front of a Botticelli painting and look at it looking at it but I gotta tell you it's only marginally more when you're doing it live and you've got everybody bustling around Mm. you with their audio guides pressed and the volume too high so you can hear their language coming through their audio guide (laughs) when you really just want to be standing there in front of it on your own
1: I think I think there's two things that I think about with that one is that we want to be surprised and we want um and in, in, to bring it back to film, I think often the reason that people get obsessed about film, and I've made the heroin joke before, but it's a similar sort of thing where you're chasing that first amazing hit yes. of what it was like when the lights went down and something you never imagined happened in front of yes. your eyes, or the first time you landed in a foreign city and you're like, I'm here, I don't speak the language is that okay? What's gonna happen? Am I gonna survive well, the first time Holy crap, you, I am surviving. The first you know.
0: time you get out of that yellow cab in New York in November. Sure. The first time that you step out of the Santa Lucia train station in Venice and walk down the steps and are confronted by the Grand Canal with the 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 ferry boats going along it is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. What happens after that?
1: Yeah, do you do you just go chasing the same hit. Do you develop now? There's this other idea of sort of belonging as well, right? I mean, we've sort of alluded to this in a couple ways, but you know, there'll be people who and friends of ours who have introduced us when they've joined us on our trip to various under the radar kind of like, oh, here's where the cool people go for drinks or to eat or whatever, and we'll show up at some place that we never would have found that has a line around the corner because. Mm everybody knows that's the place to go. Mm. And if we came back two years from now, they'd be empty because all those people would be someplace else because that's the nature of belonging to that community. But um, again, there'll be a group of other people who would be like, why are you even traveling to Paris when, you know, you could be going to Uzbekistan Mm. (laughs) Um, or you could be going to Madagascar. And
0: having a completely novel experience.
1: Yeah. And but but all all these experiences ultimately it's like well they're mediated and what
0: do, what do you want you know and what do you want well i feel as though we have posed many questions um <laughs> for continued pondering um and hopefully bared our souls a little bit in terms of how film has influenced um both this trip but travelling in general and what it is that we're realizing about um, what I like to call the the sort of the smashing of the dream with regards to reality. And
1: uh, having said that, we're going to be in a week and a half immersing ourselves in the um, world of dreams and going off to the Cannes Film Festival. So um, hopefully the next time you hear us, we'll have...
0: We'll have spent 12 days in um, a variety of cinemas, seeing uh, possibly four or five films a day, Um, possibly, hopefully, attending press conferences with luminaries speaking. Um, We know for a fact that Quentin Tarantino's uh, latest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, has now been prepared for Cannes, and he'll be there with Margot Robbie, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt. Um, We know that Pedro Almodovar will be there. Um, and um,
1: Jim Jarmusch, all the uh, Lab Diaz, which, you know... 0.24 0.24 of our two listeners
0: will appreciate. <laughs> um, and uh, Claire Denis, you said, is going to be there. Uh, she's
1: just there as a judge. Um, well, the, she's there.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. you know. Yorgos being... Lanthimos is there as a judge? Absolutely. Uh, Elle Fanning is there as a judge. So, um, that'll be an interesting Bono. time. Honey,
1: you got get to meet Bono. Oh,
0: my gosh.
1: <laughs> um, He's presenting a documentary. We'll try hard to avoid him.
0: So, apart from that, um, yes, Ken will be. Um, a rare and good time. So uh, we look forward to uh, having something to say that you might be interested in listening to when we get back.
1: And if you have any reflections on these thoughts, let us know. Until then, this is Doug. And this is Sarah. And we're married to the movies.